20 square box. Blocks. Blocks. 20 square blocks. Square. Michael Westlake is a master of creating soundscapes. Carefully composing auditory experiences that transports audiences to other realms. Yet among the symphony of his creative endeavours, he finds solace in the serene simplicity of silence. Hello. Hello. All I know about you is you're a musician. Yes. And you wear a hat. <laughs> right. Jazz music, is that right? Well, I'm a classically trained jazz musician and composer, but also I've played, because I play other instruments like guitar, bass, percussion, sing, you know, I've played a lot of contemporary music and Latin music, um, just about every, every style, actually. Oh, it's good to see you don't control the whole thing. You know, you just sing and compose and... <laughs> well, that's great because, you know, I've done, you know, I've done an album or two or I've done a few things where I've just done everything myself. Yeah, well, that way I guess you don't need to rely on somebody specifically if they're not turning up or if they're not doing what you want. Is that right? Is that why you sort of do it by well, yourself? Well, one of the reasons is that you can take your time. Like, for instance, I didn't play bass. You know, I did an album about 10 years ago and I thought I was going to get in the session player I knew who's like an amazing bass player. But what was happening was the music was changing as I was going uh, because, you know, I'm experimenting, you know, because that's part of the creative process when you're recording. Yeah, right. You know, so, if you, you know, if you're paying a session musician $250 a hit and then you yep. realise two days later that you've got to redo it, well, that's suddenly becomes very expensive. <laughs> yeah, I remember that uh, once I got – no, I don't even bother with that story because it's not interesting. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my very brief moment of, of session musicians was um, paying someone to do a big band arrangement. Wow. Yeah, and he was mm. getting session musicians from Australian Idol, which, yeah, cost a fair bit. Ah, a lot. <laughs> it did. <laughs> but fortunately, these people could play more than one instrument. Oh, so yeah. they'd come in and they'd play like you know, this and that, and, you know, yeah, the yeah. trumpet and then the saxophone, well, several instruments. Well, usually one, you know, I remember doing a session um, for Anthony Warlow, you know, the uh, opera yeah, I've, I've heard of him, yep. And, uh, and we, we had to record in sections. So the sax player came in, played all the saxes. So oh. he just went, you know, the, the baritone, then he did the tenor, then he did the alto. Wow. With certain instruments, they play groups of instruments. What was the Anthony Wallow um, project at that time? What was it? Uh, that was his first album called Centre Stage. I think I've got this album. Have you? I've got it on tape. Yeah, right. Yeah, we're going back a fair bit now. <clears throat> I'm guessing to the 90s. Uh, it was 1990. That's re it's such a good album. I've listened to that probably about, I, I wouldn't exaggerate, 100 times. Wow, okay. Because yeah, it was on a tape back in those days. He just never took the tape out of the car. So it would just <laughs> continually play through. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, if you look on the inner sleeve, there's a there's a picture of me with hair. <laughs> I don't think I've got the inner sleeve. I think it, I think it might be a copy. <laughs> I know it's a copy. And it's very funny because in that thing, there's you know how uh, you, you see old like fifties George Gershwin, and you will see um, composers and lyricists pointing at the music, yeah. like sitting at the piano yeah. pointing at the music. Yeah. This has got a picture of us with the conductor Anthony Wallow. And me and the conductor are pointing at the conductor school, which looks like it's posed, but it's, it's actually not. no, it's not. It's the yeah. one moment where 
um, the music was going along nicely. It was um, a song from um, Les Mis. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He hits those notes too. He re- yeah, he, I, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, so I arranged that, right? Nice, nice. Um, and it's going along beautifully. And we're sitting in the studio and amongst these strings and going, dear Muppet. And then suddenly the strings go, <laughs> <laughs> the bottom dropped out of it. And the conductor said, stop, 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 something's wrong there. And, and, uh, it was all perfect except for this one chord, and we're sitting there and and looking at the cellos, and it said, "Oh, two cellos on the top two. And the, I said, that, "That should be right. I don't know." And that's the very moment the photographer filmed ah. <laughs> the moment of the most amount of stress, until um, the conductor went, "Oh no, no, three cellos on the bottom, one on the top." Did that? Fixed it. Awesome. Right. Um, so you arranged it all. You would have. Uh, My boy Bill was on there, if I remember. Yep. My boy Bill. He does a good job of that from Carousel. And um, there was something I really, really liked on that album, like especially. Oh, luck be a lady tonight. Well, I don't have that song because that's, that's, I only had one side of a tape. (laughs) (laughs) And that must come later in the album. That's right. Yes, because it never quite made it all the way. Well, and the other thing too is I, uh, what happened was because, because it was his first album, right? Yeah. So we had to sort of do some clever tricks. To make sixty thousand dollars worth sound like a hundred, and anyway, um, Anthony has said. So what, what's happening about the um, the vocals, the chorus part in um, "Luck Be a Lady"? <laughs> but but anyway, I secretly thought actually one thing I'd really like to do is sing along in harmony to that the Waller. So I, I a naughty part of me thought oh, I'll just leave the last minute and then offer to do overdubs. Myself at the end. So right near the end, you know, right near the recording, I said, we we can do the same thing. I can just arrange the harmonies as we go. (laughs) And so we had an absolute ball. We spent about an hour like saying, okay, you sing the third there. So if you – so the top part, which is actually uncredited – is me no, right, <laughs> singing right. the singing the uh, overdub harmonies with him? So that was really really good fun, but probably the moment, which is one of the classic um, sort of you know you know moments, is that Anthony sang uh, "Music of the Night." Oh yeah, yeah, that amazing in one take. One take. It was his first take, and they said, "Okay, Anthony, we've got all the levels. The orchestra's here. Let's just do a run through." And it was just the most astounding performance. And everyone, and at the end of it, he said, is that all right? <laughs> and we were all like, <laughs> and at that very moment, a mouse stuck its head out of the, the wall of a little mouse hole. <laughs> and, it, and it was just like one of those, it should have been, fil- should have been filmed, you know. <laughs> I was born in West Australia in a country town called right. Wild Catcham. It's about 220 kilometres inland from Perth, so it's the Wheat Belt. So that area is what's called Noongar Tribe. You know how quite a, a lot of footballers um, say you know, they're from a Noongar Tribe. Yeah. That means they're from that region. So, it's you know, it's Mallee country. That's the, that's the only place yeah, wheat okay. can grow. It was like heaven being on a farm, you know, seeing the sunrise and sunset. To me, it's been one of the greatest gifts. I think that that, that has shaped uh, my life. The funny thing is, I'm about the only person I know that didn't have a record player, <laughs> you know, 
in my the first person to have a record player in our house was me when I was 16 you know um, so but we had the radio you know so you had you know you know you had that uh, AM ABC radio kind of thing yeah yeah uh, you know so you hear the singing nun and the sound of music when were you born at 1956 oh okay right. you, you don't look like you were born in 1956 well the music's made me young <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, you kept yourself very healthy. Yeah, well, um, yeah, because what happened when I was about 26, I started living in a meditation centre in Fitzroy. (laughs) Right, okay. While still being a muso. So what happens in Perth, I was a musician, you know, uh, began as a muso playing in bands. And then when I, in 1980, I came to Melbourne to study music and then basically stayed here. You don't live a rock and roll music life, though, I'm guessing, because, you know, you've got your teeth, you've got your hair. Well, I don't know if you've got your hair, you've got a hat on. No, no, yes. <laughs> you know, you see people who've been playing in rock bands for years. Yeah. And they're a bit of a disaster. Yeah, they look kind of – I see people from those old rock and roller days and they look grey. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but usually, you know, what's happened to them is most of them – uh, end up trying to, uh, you know, write music for a television or advertising and, and basically sit in front of a computer. <laughs> what's what's your main interest then in music? Which particular genre? It has been jazz, but, you see, yeah. composition, you see, I've done composition kind of doing uh, ambient kind of music. That That's when I live in a meditation centre. Yeah, I was nice. writing ambient. Right. But then that led to writing some film music, right? So I like writing film music but in recent times I've been writing more contemporary classical music because you know I've got a grand piano and um, I love that to me I just love sitting just at a grand piano playing solo or the next thing is playing in a trio with double bass drums and pianos is heaven heaven on a stick for me so with jazz music was La La Land annoying to you I didn't like La La Land (laughs) I didn't think it would you know jazz is too wide I think my interest is, you know, like I'm not a jazz dude who like sits down and talks about John Coltrane for five hours with musicians. Thank you. Yeah. You know, like if I'm with people, I don't talk about music. Probably the people who inform me the most about music are visual artists actually. All right. Um, because they talk about the creative process in a kind of a egoless kind of way, I find. They just say, oh, yeah, well, I just started working on that and my hand moves. You know, they're not trying to convey that they're a genius or anything like that. Um, but also, you know, when someone uses a different language about a creative process, yeah. it makes you suddenly reconfigure and think about your own creative process. It, it turns my head around, basically, and gets me thinking. And, in fact, I've written music because of conversations and seeing art from visual artists. In fact, a very good friend of mine, um, what happened was I, uh, since I've been in Ballarat, I started making little film clips, you know, where I, and the first one I did was just a piano piece I'd written. So it was in the more contemporary classical kind of style where it was notated. I gave it to my friend and anyway, uh, she made a painting hmm. based on that. Right. Right. It was called Neptune. And I went to her exhibition and she had a uh, sequence. You know how quite often visual artists, they'll have themes where it's the same yeah, yeah. shape with different things. So I saw and looked at Neptune, but it didn't – it's funny because it didn't feel like it informed anything because she'd got it from something that I'd informed her. So I went, oh, that's nice. Then I looked at the painting next to it and I thought – what is that? It's funny. It was the same design, everything, different coloration. I thought, what is that? 
<laughs> I said, how much is that? And, it, and it, it was something I could buy. I said, I'm buying that. That has got some secret in it that I don't know, haven't, don't know what it is yet. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Most people would sort of think, oh, I'll, I'll buy the one that was sort of written about, you know, my work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And tell everyone. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but what happened was I put it in my music room directly behind my piano yeah. and used to look at it and think, what's going on? Then one day I said, look, tell me about that painting. What, what does it mean? And she said, from outer space, the higher frequencies of the divine are being um, led through a step-down transformer into your house so it doesn't blow your toast. Okay, it's very specific. Yes. And I went, that's it. Step-down transformer. And then I wrote an eight-piece jazz suite. Going back to Wild Catchem, I think that that's informed everything in my life because I, I really think that if I hadn't had something grounded, being on a farm and being connected with nature, I think I think I would have um, self-destructed, basically. You had those tendencies you found later? No. Well, you see, what, what I realised, and I think, you know, my, my mental and physical health is because I, I spend a lot of energy in being grounded, do you know what I mean? Because creative people... It's quite possible to be prone to addiction, um, unbalanced life. Yeah, it? this is what I was talking about before. Right. That's, I think that's why they, a lot of musicians are really sort of wrecked. That's right. And with me, I don't think I would have survived. When I look at some people that, you know, of the same generation as me and are still living kind of rough lifestyle, you know, they must have the constitution of rhinoceros, you know, um, which I don't think I have, right? So... Um, I, so it's been about a balance, balanced life. So I, I really feel that that um, seed that was sown, especially having a very earthy father who loved the farming, and but also taught me a lot about, taught all of us about Aboriginal culture. Would you believe? So it's a farm. I knew more about Aboriginal culture than farming when that, I left. That is quite rare. It is really rare, and uh, I feel blessed. One of the things, you know, through meditation and Eastern philosophy that I, just sits very naturally with me is, you know, I implicitly believe in reincarnation. And I really feel that my father had been Aboriginal before himself. So his sense of connection with the land was not just about being a farmer and growing wheat and extracting. It was about a relationship with the land. Um, so that's unique. I mean, even his disposition, he was... Kind of very gentle, like you know, like the farmers were, you know, g'day, Wisty, you know, <laughs> you know, g'day, and also, you know, break every bone in your in your hand when you're shaking your hands, you know, kind of thing, you know. But you know, really tough farmer. And my father was, you know, a very good farmer, but yeah. he kind of wasn't like that. He was, he'd sort of take you aside and say, "Well, now I'm going to show you, son, how to how to how to make a spear thrower." Nice. <laughs> <Right. laughs> wow. How does that, how come that? He said, well, that's called leverage, son. So it was a bit of science mixed in, you know. There we go. You know, and then um, and then a bull, you know, I think everyone made a bull roarer in West Australia, you know. Younger. We used to make them with rulers, actually. It's more like a, a straight um, uh, boomerang and you just tie it on a string and it goes. Oh, right, okay. And you whirl it around your head. Have you ever used one of those in your music? No. <laughs> Why? Damn it. <laughs> I think I got more fascinated with rain sticks, you know, and. And Eastern uh, India too, I think, bells and chimes, oh, yeah, right. you know, that I've always loved, you know, this, 
you know, you, you know, if you just get a temple bell and just go ding, it takes you, it takes you somewhere else. It, it, it. Have you, have you found that? On top of a, a mountain area, uh, Samui, there was a bunch of little bells, and um, yeah, you just hit them and they were very just. You just listen. Oh. I don't think I was transported anyway, but it was very, very. Uh, there's something about just listening to that fade away. Yes, and then you hear the planes take off. So, kind yeah. of wound it a bit. I, I've got these little chimey jingly bells, really gentle. And whenever I think oh, it's time for the chimey bells, I, I put them in. And it's funny, you know, because these days, you know, with sampling and that, you know, when you have digital recordings, mm. it'd be so easy for me to just go up to a, you know a file and get it. And I always choose to re-record them because nice. I just love yeah, going. Great. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so I'm guessing you've been to India. I've been 19 times. 19 times more than me. Oh, 19 times more. Oh, you must go. <laughs> I would like to one day, yeah. So I'm guessing that you've got an interest in the Beatles. Do you like their music? Oh, do I? Am I, am I interested in Of course I'm interested. Did that influence your trips to India at all? Well, you know, it would sown some seeds. Ah, right, of course. I think because my parents actually bought me a record and got it right. What did they buy you? Sergeant Peppers. And that was, that was, there was a, a, some, there was Within some Indian. You, without yes. you. George Harrison playing sitar. When I heard that, I just thought, that is amazing. And so that triggered, um, so how many years ago? So about three years later, I was sitting at Winthrop Hall in uh, WA Uni. Yeah. And uh, it was a visiting Indian sitar player. And he's on a stage that was only foot high, uh, you know, with a rug, like a Persian rug. And he says, this is called a rug, and this will take about 45 minutes, so please. Um, wow, right. Minutes. And so, and we're sitting on the floor, like tiles. And I remember just listening to that and being somewhere else. In fact, you know, there was just tile marks on my legs and backside, you know, you know, the joints. Uh, I just took me somewhere else. So you went over... To India to explore this kind of sound and this feeling that you no, had back then? No, it was nothing to do with music. It was the exact opposite. I went there for silence because what happened was um, I came home late and my ex-girlfriend appeared in a sleeping bag uh, on my bedroom floor. Like I came home one night and they said, Noni has arrived from Queensland. I went, oh, I haven't spoken to her for two months. Anyway, I said, hi, how have you been? What have you been doing? She said, I've been practicing meditation. I've been practicing Raj Yoga meditation for the last two months. And then told me everything about it between one o'clock in the morning and eight in the morning. And so I got basically hit over the head with a large sledgehammer. No, no subtle introductions. Just this is it. You should do it too. I suddenly had... I just went out of gear. I just went into another space. I thought, what's all this for? Why am I doing music? Who is God? You know, I, I just went into another place of question. We all have this sort of thing. Sometimes you can feel when there's a change coming and you know what it is, but maybe you hold off for a bit until a moment happens where it's it, it, there's no return kind of thing. Uh, but what happened was I'd already committed to go to the Franklin River demonstration. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. You were down in Tassie. Yes. So. You were there. So you, you, that was successful. Yes, that's right. So that was, that was a funny life moment. That was, that was January 1983. What happened was just before then, before I started practicing meditation, I thought, where's my life going? 
And I thought, I'm either going to go to India to study Mahatma Gandhi's Satyagraha philosophy, you know, which is civil disobedience, or I'm going to ask Little River Band if they need a keyboard player. But I went to the Franklin River. And what happened was you couldn't demonstrate in the Franklin River until you'd done a day and a half of civil disobedience training. It was very clear, and this is Bob Brown that set this down, and civil disobedience obviously is what Mahatma Gandhi used to oust the British. So you did a day and a half training, and then you went and sat in the site and sat in front of the bulldozers, and there was the most amazing relationship between the police and the demonstrators. Completely harmonious. A good relationship. Really good relationship. And so what would happen, you'd sit in front of the bulldozers, there'd be television crews there, you know, no dams, no dams, placards. The policeman would come up to you and say, are you aware that you are breaking the such and such act of And you say, yes, I am. He says, you are under arrest, come this way. You're under arrest, you're under arrest, you're under arrest. No manhandling whatsoever, no violence. And then they'd put you in the paddy van and then you'd go to the, um, uh, the courthouse in Strawn and then you'd be charged in groups of 12. Which, and it was very, it was hilarious. You'd be sitting out in the uh, reception area of the courthouse and everyone's being charged in groups of 12 and you were sitting with demonstrators and police. And the demonstrators were university professors, children, uh, truck drivers, um, every, every cross-section of Australian society that had come from every corner of Australia. And I remember being there, and, and you'd be talking to the policeman, and you'd say, oh, I'm Michael, what's your name? Well, my name's Bob. And what's it like being a policeman? Oh, you're not too bad, you know. And, um, and anyway, <laughs> and then I remember, I remember saying, oh, well, I feel like some lunch. Anyone, um, anyone want anything? And then Bob says, I'll have pine sauce. And okay, yeah, right. What do you want? I take their money, then walk down the shops, get the, get, get the stuff, bring it back, give them all their change, and then you'd go into the court. <laughs> but the funny thing was, then the policeman said, oh, look, I'm really sorry about this. The judge has to have lunch, yeah. and by law, you have to be in jail. So we had to get into the panel van, yeah. be driven by panel van, up the street, down the street again, get into the jail for an hour, and then be driven by panel van back to there, and then sitting there in the foyer and then go to court. <laughs> I did have one more experience, which is my favourite. When we were ordering food, there was only, it was all vegetarian. There was like rice with peanuts in it and then rice with sprouts in it. And Bob Brown was the person in front of me. And Bob Brown said, I love the brown rice with the peanuts. And then I said, I'll have what Bob's having. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a bit of a celebrity. Bob Brown, obviously, at the time, for you guys. Well, the Greens had only just started. So he wasn't kind of, you know, he wasn't kind of something that you you just went, oh, this guy Bob Brown, he's the Greens and he's organising this. He sounds cool. This sounds good. It's kind of interesting, you know, years later there was the, was it G8 demonstration mm-hmm. a few years ago? And there was violence in it. And, of course, what did the media cover? Horses, police... Uh, people throwing things at them there. Around the corner, Bob Brown was also uh, demonstrating completely peaceful, not newsworthy. So really highlighted, I think, that, um, you know, you got it's got to be done in a total way, a collective way, mm. you know. So um, I think that's, you know, a sort of a lesson to be drawn from that. It was kind of, there was an irony within that, the fact that the silent 
worked. Thanks for listening to 20 Square Blocks. If you like the show, do the things that podcasts ask you to do. Subscribe, like, review, and most importantly, tell someone you know. Thanks to my guest, Michael Westlake. That's me. Who lives seven blocks to the north of me. Original music by Ryan Goodwin. Check out his other music at virtuallyryan.com. Additional material written by Anne Murison. Editing by the inimitable Ricky Cheno. And thanks to H-Studios for the use of their studios. I'm Ben Plaza and this is 20 Square Blocks.